Hey guys, welcome back to Tennis 360, podcast where we talk about all things tennis. My name's Anthony Hirsch. And I'm Eliza Westgate. Welcome back to the podcast. So we've got a lot to talk about. Iga Sviantek wins the WTA Finals for the first time in her, her career. And uh, Eliza, you actually got to be at the tournament watching that as well. Uh, what was your experience like watching that? What did you think of the final and the win? Yeah, I mean, look, she put on a stellar, you know, kind of week in terms of, you know, I think only 22 games total dropped. I think that's a WTA finals record better than uh, Navratilova had uh, back in her day. So, you know, truly dominant display at the WTA finals. And, you know, ever since she lost the number one ranking, I think she perhaps felt a sense of relief of not always being the one that's chased and instead assuming the role of chaser. And perhaps that brought out the best in her, um, and also gave her some indications as to what she needed to work on since the U.S. Open. And I think she, by winning this tournament, has sort of solidified her position, in my opinion, as the number one player on the tour this year. You know, uh, one more kind of large title. And her performance there was just so dominant. It You know, it's tough to kind of t- to question that. And the final itself, I mean, look, uh, we'd love to see a more competitive final. We'd love to see a scoreline that seems a bit more thrilling and gripping. But the conditions were just so tough this week in Cancun. And I think for Pagula in particular, the conditions were very different from when she played on Saturday to Monday. Um, you know, all of, all of the week kind of Wednesday through Saturday was extremely windy and rainy. And Pagula kind of seemed to be the one that knew how to handle that the best. And uh, the conditions yesterday were, were different to that. They were calmer and not, not quite so brutal. And um, it looked like she had a hard time adjusting to it with switching her racket set up a couple of times and just couldn't really get going in the final. And uh, from that perspective, a little disappointing, but, you know, an ultra dominant performance from Iga. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. I think the question of who's the player of the year uh, I think Iga pretty much won it with the WTA finals. I think Sabalenka still has an argument for it, particularly because yeah. it's one major versus one major, but then there's, I think Sviantek has six titles, Sabalenka only three titles. So I think Iga gets in the end and winning the final tournament at the end. And I, the final w- wasn't very close. It was like 6-1, 6-0, but I was actually almost more impressed by beating Sabalenka in the style she did in the semifinals because she mm-hmm. brought out such an incredible level, one of the best levels I've seen her play kind of all year. She won over 80% of her, her surf points, 81%. And she was coming to net. She was volleying. I mean, she was doing things. Uh, she was playing about as well as I've ever seen her play, to be honest, on the hard courts. And it was uh, it was very good. I felt like it was a, sta- a couple statement wins. Bagula got the win over her at the start of the year. I think like 6-2, 6-2 at United Cup. She says right back at you at the very last, last match of the year, 6-1, 6-0. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah and she lost, beat crazy. her in, um, Pagula beat her in three sets when that whole Cup Joe uh, incident <laughs> happened as well. So, you know, Pagula's had wins over her and they've had tight matches before. So it's not like this is a, a dead rubber matchup per se. It just, um, yeah, sometimes you catch people on a, in a moment and um Shriantek has finished the year super strong and I also agree with you she's implemented a couple of things that uh she's doing better this part of the season this part of the year um particularly with her volleying and I I can't quite you know pinpoint what it is about her serve if it's different at all or if it really was the surface that was favoring her her serve but she was causing not just Sabalenka but you know everybody problems with her serve this week which isn't something we would usually say about Sviantek's serve. It's, you know, usually we're looking at Rabakina, Sabalenka, Garcia with kind of the, the you know, best servers on the women's tour. Sviantek's not usually the one who we like think of in that way, but, you know, um, you know, all credit to her because actually statistically she's won the most points on serve in 2023, despite not having a conventional kind of, you know, big serve that we would associate with someone who's, you know, got a 64.4% win rate behind her serve. <laughs> so something's, something's clicking. Um, the mentality seems right. Uh, the stress seemed to be alleviated. And so the question is kind of, again, going to be for next year as to 
she's back in that number one spot. She's being chased again. Like, how is she going to handle that pressure? And I think up until the US Open, I really would have said that Sambalenka had the better year because, you know, she was in contention for every single slam pretty much. I mean, she was in the semifinal or better. And I think one of Iga's titles that was a 250 in, in Poland, you know, really was one that she should have won. So I'm sort of looking at three to five on, on additional titles there. Um, and things looked a lot closer. But, you know, um, this is a tricky part of the season where some players are able to turn up and, and do a little more than others. And she's also played a few more games, uh, a few more tournaments than uh, Sabalenka did. So she ended up, um, you know, with more match wins this season which ultimately put her in a position to have, you know, the 245 more ranking points she needed to take the number one slot. And so you sort of wonder if uh, Sabalenka wished she played an extra tournament or two. So uh, her, her ranking was a little more solidified. But, you know, I think overall Sabalenka will be very pleased with the year that she's had. I mean, she's made such huge improvements from 2022. Very admirable. Um, you know, looks physically great. I think the best I've ever seen her. Um has a great attitude towards, you know, improving herself. And I think that that will just continue to be an ongoing battle between the two of them in that spot. And, um, you know, they're clearly kind of a level above the rest. We talk about the top tier in, in men's tennis of kind of Djokovic, you know, and Alcaraz being a little bit on their own and then yeah. the others kind of being separated. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing here as well as, you know, of course, Coco got her major, but, um, she hasn't, she hasn't the kind of half of the season prior to the U S open or U S swing wasn't impressive from Coco. So until we see her have a full season where she's running, you know, deep in the slams, multiple titles, then, you know, we can start adding her in on that conversation. But I, I do think Shriantek and Sabalenka are a little bit cut above the rest at the moment. And it's um, an exciting time for women's tennis to see that storyline continue to develop. Yeah, well, I didn't know the uh, initial 64.4% service points won, but that's a crazy stat because uh, yeah. obviously Shriantek doesn't have the hard serve that Sabalinka possesses or Rabakina mm -hmm. possesses. They were, um, for I think a lot of the year, the top two most aces on the tour as well as the top two most highest win percentage on serve. But yeah, Shriantek must have passed that at the very end. What Shriantek did on serve this this week particularly, I think is I think uh, she's always had the hype on her serve that's very good and very consistent high percentage kind of kick uh, kicks in. But I think also she's she's really added in some pace off the ground. I, I mean, uh, off the serve and off the ground. Uh, off the ground, she was hitting five miles per hour faster than Sabalinka for parts that match off the forehand side in the semifinals. And it was... Um, yeah, I think Sviantec in many, uh, many aspects really uh, just started hitting with so much great pace, was being very, her athleticism was amazing from the back of the court, yeah. helping her get into position for a lot of shots, especially off the forehand side. The forehand was amazing, especially in the semifinal match. And in the in the final, Pagula really didn't bring her best level, especially a lot of errors coming into the, into the net in that match. Mm -hmm. She was not getting low to the ball. I don't know if she was physically tired or what it was, but a lot of errors coming from her end. That's not takeaway from Iga, but it wasn't an incredible performance from Pagula. She actually only won five service points in the second set. That was 6-0, mm -hmm. which is a stat. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so shame for Pagula, who really had an incredible season. She ends the season. Yeah. Uh, winning uh, 59 matches almost 60 matches and 51 of those uh she was uh, 51 of those um she won the first set she was 51 and zero after winning the first set this year which is a crazy stat and um yeah so shout out pagula but shriantek just playing too good and i th but i do think that final kind of shows you don't have to be the hardest hitters in the women's game to still get to the top of the sport. Pagula nor Shriantek are six, over six feet tall. They're not the biggest servers. They're not killing every ball, crushing every ball line to line. Uh, but Shriantek's just amazing athleticism from, from the back of the court, especially to be able to hit the forehands like she was uh, and get into position and to be able to have the placement on their shots, be crafty, use their skills, uh, and just be consistent and mentally smart. And that's what Shriantek and Pagula are able to do. And, uh, I was happy that that was the final, but you get just too good. Yeah, I agree with you, you know, and I think that's kind of the exciting thing about women's tennis is that there's a number of different ways to kind of go about winning matches. And there is a little bit more of that kind of craftiness and adjusting to who your opponent is. I think it's something for Sabalenka to watch. Um, you know, we saw it a little bit in the U.S. Open final 
where her strategies or her thought process kind of seems to be, I am going to hit out hit this person. I'm going to hit them off the court. And in the first set against Goff in that final, that's exactly, you know, what she did. And, and it, and it worked. Um, but then, you know, preceding that, she kind of got surprised by the number of balls back Kuko was kind of able to get and just putting it in the court and kind of, you know, waiting for Sabalenka to, to miss. And, and it does happen for Sabalenka. And I think she also shouldn't be surprised. You know, these ladies are fast. They can obviously move well. And if you're hitting a ball at somebody, you know, that fast, most likely it's also going to come back that fast at you. It's not like they're taking a lot of pace off of it. And so we've seen those stats a couple of times. I think even Pagula was hitting harder than Sabalenka in that matchup because, you know, when you're pounding it down at somebody, you just got to have fast hands to be able to, you know, push it back with the similar speed. So um, I think she does need to kind of have a think about her plan B a little bit and her variety. I think that to me is what's missing with Sabalenka is um, – the fact that I don't think she kind of has to commit to this all-out power you off the court strategy, especially for these other kind of top eight players that she's playing against. You know, other players that are outside of the top 10, top 20, yeah, that's a tactic that's going to work. Um, but I think she needs to continue to kind of grow her intelligence on the court um, and be willing to be a little bit more crafty. I think Shriantek hit a number of really good drop shots this week, a new kind of skill we haven't seen too much from her. Um, those things like that, you know, would also help be being integrated into Sabalenka's game. Um, and I would assume are things that she's going to work on in the off season. So, but, you know, I, I agree with you. I think Pagula's had a great year, um, has completely solidified herself inside the top 10 as a contender, um, you know, has, has picked up a good number of titles, obviously got some wins here at the WTA finals, which she wasn't able to do last year. And I think the next step for her now is, um, you know, she's she's got to make an impact at the slams. Um, that that absolutely has to happen in order for her to to get to the next level as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Pagul, I think now uh, is like zero and six, zero and seven in quarterfinals. Yeah. That made her some bad stats. She actually got really close at Wimbledon, which you wouldn't expect to on the grass courts. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, that's where Pagula needs to improve on. She actually had quite a few wins against top five, top 10 players throughout the year. She was mm -hmm. actually top five for the whole season. But yeah, it's just at the majors where it just kind of evades her, um, evades her for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a big win for Iga Sviantek. I feel like after the Beijing tournament was when Sviantek really started picking her yeah. game up. She said herself after that tournament, like, uh, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I found something at that tournament that was quite uh special to me and uh mm -hmm. you can see it through all of her matches uh there she beat coco got revenge in the semifinals, and, and then uh had a beat samsonova in the final very comfortably i mean she really found her game again and then everything that she was showing in that tournament coming to net more uh which is great like you said hitting more drop shots adding more variety and um she looked more like herself. And yeah, in this tournament, I feel like she really found it. And that semifinal versus Sabalenka, outside of clay courts, potentially, is the best that I've ever seen Iga play. She was absolutely ruthless, absolutely dialed in. And you could see it after her reaction. She didn't do a single piece of emotion throughout the match. After the match ended, she was going crazy on the court, very passionate. Mm -hmm. And it was mm -hmm. great to see from Iga, who's usually so kind of dialed down in a match. But yeah, she cared. Yeah. She cared about getting that world number one ranking back, and she knew what was at stake. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then, uh, yeah, like you said, Iga, the least games ever lost in a WTA Finals, 20 games, absolutely dominant. Um, and yeah, it was a crazy WTA Finals, though. I mean, <laughs> the conditions were the conditions were something else. It was constantly raining, constantly start and stop. The wind was ridiculous. You were at the event. Do you want to tell kind of your version of what happened at the event from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, look, um, I think one can kind of split it into two parts. The first part kind of talking about the, the court itself and the surface, the stadium that they built. And, you know, it was built on top of a golf course. The ground was wet and soaked from rainy season. We're talking about, you know, a court that was built on top of grass. That's a very hard surface to make sure is level and even and isn't going to create kind of dead spots and strange bounces 
And I mean, like I was looking underneath the stadium. I mean, it was like this thick. It was so yeah, that's thin. crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. And like, uh, you know, even parts of the stadium like screwed into tree roots. I mean, it was. I was talking to photographers. They were like, "This is the most hairy stadium we've worked in." I mean, you could tell it was put up in in the short amount of time it was put up. Um, so, from a player perspective, you know, the court was unpredictable. It it at some points the ball completely died and there were significant dead spots. And then at other points, the ball was bouncing like crazy. I mean, I saw a couple kick serves from Triantec that was above Sabalenka's head. I mean, those are things that we don't associate with uh, Sviantec's serve. And I'm, I'm sorry, like, I know she's an effective server, but we don't see her kick serve like that on a regular basis. Um, and there's plenty of evidence to prove that. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was creating a very difficult environment for the players um, to be able to read, read the ball well. And then on, um, you know, from a fan perspective, it was not the best. Like you were walking through mud and feel like your golf course, you know, patches that were wet and soggy and sandy and people falling over in it. I mean, totally unaccessible for anybody with disability. I mean, um, not not very nice to have to walk through that, navigate that. Obviously, no indoor space really to to hide when the rains were coming down. Um, it that that part was unpleasant. So, you know, the players were challenged by that in itself. And then you add the elements on top of it, which um, you know, I know we're in kind of the first week in November, but in October in um Cancun, statistically it rained 17 days of the month. So I mean they knew coming to Cancun that uh, that was going to be a gamble or they would be fighting the elements. Uh, one <laughs> one rumor or suggestion I heard was that the WTA originally intended for this to be at an indoor venue, but that they had um, gotten the height of the indoor venue wrong. It wasn't The ceiling wasn't high enough, which is another reason why they ended up being so last minute with the stadium construction. I can't confirm if that's true or not, but... Uh, one one thought another thought as to why it was so last minute and um i also heard from locals that uh the stadium kind of was like mostly finished and then they had a huge rain and they kind of had to like start over with a lot of it so again that kind of led to a lot of stress pre-tournament why the players couldn't warm up on those courts etc um but i mean so you had the rain that and it wasn't like it, you had one downpour a day where it rained a couple hours and it stopped. I mean, it was constantly, intermittently raining. So the, it was really hard for players to get momentum. It was hard for the fans to kind of really get excited about it. Uh, you know, you'd have, I think with the sabalenka Rabakina match, they had six, seven rain delays or, you know, pauses in there. Um, that's really difficult to like come back and, you know, warm up and face a break point that you were defending. I mean, it completely lost momentum for the players. And then on top of that, I think we all know as <laughs> as rec players or professional players, playing in wind is one of the most difficult things that you can do. Um, and the wind was crazy strong. I mean, um, we were talking about wind that was coming from the periphery of, of hurricanes that were hitting lower down areas in Mexico. So, I mean, these were strong gusts. I think uh, Coco posted a kind of funny video on her Instagram of like one of her coaches trying to hit the ball out of like the practice courts. And it ended up coming back inside because <laughs> it, the wind crazy. was so strong. And I mean, I was sitting behind the players at points and you know how it is when it bounces and then all of a sudden it's like over here and that footwork was all off, the timing was off. And some players can adjust to that better than others, depending on their setup, their grip, you know, how they move, how they read the ball, et cetera. Um, and some players just had more patience for it. And, and, and that's understandable. It's, it's hard. It gets into your head. It's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, can can really kind of destroy your momentum and destroy your confidence if, if it's not going well for you. And we saw that with like Sakari and Von Juseva and Jabor. They just, just couldn't really get a grip on it. And you could tell they weren't having a good time. Um, even with Coco in her semifinal against Pugula, she just, she couldn't figure it out. Um, you know, and, and the match that she lost against Triantec, she had, uh, I think she was serving for the second set and she had like four double faults. I mean, it was a huge windy period and, um, it made for an unpleasant fan viewing experience and it and ultimately i think in moments you know diminish the quality of the tennis and and we saw that in a number of the score lines being so drastic i mean so many bagels this week 
that's not normal you know, for players at that level. And we don't usually see that. And I wouldn't chalk that up to the women not being good players. I would chalk that up to, you know, two kind of big factors in their environment. And the, not just, it's not just the elements and it's not just the court, it's both. And um, they had no time to adjust to that either. I mean, we saw some better matches later on, which would tell you, okay, it takes a couple of days to get used to these types of conditions in this type of surface. Giving them 40 minutes to practice on here um, isn't enough. And I, I was in a, a press conference with Navratilova and Chris Eva, and they talked about how one of their finals was uh, in Madison Square Gardens. And they were like, you know, they put up the court literally the morning of the finals because they had a match before. We didn't have time to practice. But it's like, okay, but you were inside. So, like, it's yeah. one of the two factors that you're kind of competing with. Here it was everything. And I I did I did feel bad for them at, at times because it just uh, – you want to be able to see the best tennis possible at the WTA finals. It's it's a celebration of women's tennis, their achievements. Um, it really should be grilling, gripping and thrilling matches. And we didn't get that this week. And, um, you know, I've been to a number of tournaments and I've seen a number of these players play before. And I can, you know, kind of quite confidently say that I, I didn't see the best performances from these players this week that I've seen from them in the past. Like it, it wasn't the best tournament I've been to, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, all of that leads to kind of this culminating question of why did they pick Cancun? It's very frustrating that they, you know, continue to dodge the question and won't give a transparent answer to the players or to the press as to, you know, why they're, <laughs> why they're in Cancun. And uh, I know Amazon Prime asked several times to do an interview with Steve Simon, either live or um, recorded. He's declined it. Uh, he won't speak to the press. The WTA is uh, definitely trying to kind of put a lid on it or, or handle their PR crisis per se, because they know there's been a lot of negativity online about the event. And I, I think kind of their um, lack of transparency and honesty as to why you know, we ended up in the situation that we did, why they organized the tournament 40 days ahead of time. Um, the players deserve an answer and women's tennis deserves an answer and, and a truthful one. And um, I think, I think they absolutely kind of cannot fail on this again. I mean, this is now three years of kind of higgledy piggledy. Guadalajara was okay. You know, we can have forgiveness around COVID Fort Worth was crap. And, um, you know, this was even worse than Fort Worth because yeah. of all of the things that I just mentioned. So um, a lot of concerns and question marks for me as to why we ended up in the position we were in. Yeah. And uh, I know Steve Simon sent out a big paragraph explaining the situation, but it didn't really explain much of anything. And um, yeah, there's there, it's it's so sad because we had a really good season of so many tight matches. It started, I mean, it's so many matches you can point to, but Rabakna Sabalink Australian Open, and then at Wimbledon we had so many good matches, so many tight matches, and then here we just have six zero, six two with the highest level players in the world. That's not something we're used to seeing, and it has to be the conditions. And uh, what you're saying about start and stop during the Pagula and Golf match in the semifinals, there was constant rain. And, yeah. uh, and I think the players were just tired of having to leave the court and come on and they're like, okay, yeah. let's just play. It didn't, to me, it felt like the courts weren't even fully dry when the, they came on. It felt like they were still having the effects of, it felt like neither player was feeling very court, good with their footing on the courts. Yeah. And it was just sad to see, and the wind was obvious even watching on the television. It was like the players were constantly having to wait. They would throw <laughs> up a ball. It would land like a mile away. They'd yeah. have to retoss. And it's like, this is and nobody could serve as well, by the way, which would just made it impossible. And yeah, nobody could get momentum whatsoever. Um, yeah, there needs to be an explanation. And what wh where you're talking about the stadium being so obviously built on a grass uh, on a uh, golf course and it being muddy, like that's not something that's acceptable for a tournament that's played for one of the most popular sports in the world at the highest level. Like if we want people to respect the slams or respect the tournaments outside of the slams, 
then we need to make sure that they're uh, that we give them the best preparation possible, the best management possible, and make sure the players all feel comfortable and get the right practice. Because even if they get the right practice in these conditions, they're not even going to be half the players or produce half the, uh, the best matches that they would otherwise. So, um, yeah, I was just I was just very sad watching on TV because they weren't allowing these players to play at their best and compete at their best to to get that to get that kind of level or best best uh, best product. Yeah, super disappointing. And, um, you know, that Pagula Goff semifinal, that was the worst rain day of all the days. I was surprised they even played it. I mean, there's no way the court was dry. It wasn't. It was pouring all day. Um, it was horrible. I I didn't, I didn't even want to go to that match because I was like, I'm going to get soaked again. Like I'm not in the mood, you know, but I think to me, it's like, okay, let's say there's some legitimate reasons as to why they couldn't go to China as they announced they were going to do in May and some, you know, some understandable reason that they haven't shared with us, but let's say that's the position that we're in. Why wouldn't you try to host the tournament in a location that already has those tennis facilities? This is supposed to be a $15 million prize event. It ended up going to 9 million because they spent 6 million on the stadium. Like, that's the situation that they were in. Why did you spend $6 million on a temporary stadium in a location where it rains all the time and you don't have a roof? I mean, I know that there were talks about bids in Ostrava and, like, concerns about, you know, whether Belarusian player could play there, and so that's why they didn't end up voting on it. But, I mean, the WTA should be able to, um, you know, create contracts or foster deals with tournament locations that they already play at on the tour where they know they have a solid fan base where they know they're going to have good conditions. I mean, you're telling me you can't find an indoor location in, in Europe where all the players can travel to that's going to, you know, um, be able to put together a decent-sized bid. I mean, like, they could have even kind of adjusted and been like, look, all right, we'll turn Guadalajara into the WTA Finals venue again and we'll skip that as the Mosses and, and put it somewhere else. I mean, it just it just makes no sense. I, I don't understand it. Um and the fact that they also put it the week that they did. I mean, I knew they had Billie Jean King Cup to deal with, but I mean, the the Toronto Masters isn't start. Uh, sorry, Turin Masters isn't starting until next week. They could have also delayed a week and and you know picked a time in November where they were out of this kind of rainy season and um, try to make the outdoor event a little bit more uh, possible. And also a time of year where people actually want to go to Cancun and give them enough time and notice to go to Cancun. I mean, so that's why it's like, why didn't you just pick a home run at a location where you know you you have fans that are going to show up? It just would have made much more sense. And it, it's not like the weather just came out of the blue or anything. The no. forecast for a forecast was there all along. I heard people on Twitter yeah. being like, this event is going to be a disaster. This is, yeah. is there no roof? Oh, look at the forecast. It's a, the, the rain gets more and more as the week progresses, which is never a good sign. That was the forecast beforehand. It's like yeah. the, it's just completely just, I don't know what the leadership at the WTA was thinking and why they decided to do this. Cause um yeah, I mean, they can say what they want about excuses, but they should be able to find a venue, in my, in my opinion, somewhere uh, in Europe that would make way more sense to play this to play this event. Man, it's it's yeah. very weird. It's very I it's agree. either very amateur or there's something shady going on. Um, either way, it's no good. Either way, there should be calls for new leadership. I think Navratilova's right. Like you know, Steve Simon's been there for eight years and. Since 2019, 2020, the WTA hasn't turned a profit. Part of that's due to COVID. Part of that's due to Peng Shui. Not everything's under his control. But, you know, um, it should be that a woman, is, a woman is in charge of women's tennis. And whoever is in charge here in terms of the kind of management structure, it seems stale. It seems like there's a lot of egos involved. A lot of people that kind of walk around with a I'm better than you type of attitude and, you know, um, a lack of kind of what, what felt like like a lack of excitement and appreciation for the product and, you know, a willingness to do the storytelling and to do the marketing and to go about things with integrity and in the right way that respects the players that gives them the best possible opportunity to play the best tennis. And it... Um, they disrespected themselves and the players by by hosting this event in the way that they did. And then also with their, you know, 
kind of attempt to keep a lid on it and only post pictures of the crowd when the crowd showed up on the last day. You know, it was just like, yeah, everybody sees through the bullshit. I'm sorry to say it like social media, everything's going to get out. It gets around and it felt like their approach was super naive and um, honestly unprofessional in moments too. So I think they have a lot of questions to answer. <laughs> and if uh, hopefully, you know, the PTPA can also get involved here and demand some change. And hopefully in the off season, we see a reshuffling of the cabinet because um, I think these complaints are only set up to get worse if the same leadership remains in place. I mean, the, the fire is burning, right? So any little thing that's added on top of this now is, is going to be an, ex an explosion, even if that in itself is not, you know, that catastrophic of a moment. I mean, you have, a, you have another Kate gate incident or something like that, and people are going to freak out. So I think they really need to tread carefully. They really need to have a think about um, how they want to approach things for 2024. And if I could give them a word of advice, it would be um, make some changes. Yeah, for sure. And also just public pressure is a real thing. They should be willing to hear the complaints from the fans and from the players. And that's just what I would say. Like that, yeah. the fact that they're trying to muzzle down the ne negative side of it, when there's, uh, when the players can barely play in their six Oh six, two sets and there's rain and it's windy and the stadium's ridiculous and nobody's showing up to me, it just seems like you should be able to listen and put your ears up and be able to say, okay, we screw it up a little bit. We'll try to do better, but look at the positives that we have. The fact that they're muzzling it all down, just shows that there there really is something negative that needs to change and behind the scenes, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I'm glad you got to go to Cancun, but I'm sad that the experience was so uh so awful. Or so yeah, I was missed awful about, parts like, to it. Not being able to go like be a tourist a little bit too. I mean, you know, like shit, I wanted to have a little bit of a vacation, go to Tuttle yeah. Beach or Dolphin Beach and do something fun, but um no i did not put the bikini on once i did not step foot on the beach i mean it was just it was just a bad week for weather all around yeah. so but you know these things are important to go and cover to go and watch and um, see it firsthand and uh, i was happy to get the opportunity to do so and um you know i think the, the more people that can join in the conversation outside of the players who um you know can try to influence some change even on the periphery of you know our press and media and how we um you know talk about these types of of challenges that they're facing and make suggestions for what they can do in the future and kind of really have a think is all um in the end first of all a part of a, a nature of sport right there's always going to be something to complain about something somebody doesn't like but it's also an important part of evolving the WTA. It's 50 years old now. There needs to be some, some, I guess, new hope, new light for the future. Um, women, women do things differently. How the women want to set up their tour might be different from how the men want to set it up, and that's totally fine. We're we're different. Um, we're different and have different priorities in life. And what the women are asking for is is different from what the men are asking for. And I think it's, you know, I think it's about time that there's a sympathetic ear that understands, you know, things like uh, wanting time off for, for childbirth and having a family and being able to, you know, feel like you have a solid foundation to be able to do that. Um, and it's, it's time to modernize and uh, us all kind of being involved in the conversation, I think, either hopefully drives change internally because they're listening or um, encourages new talent to apply and um, try to try to work at this type of organization and do something better for the future. Yeah, well, I hope I hope that change comes. I think it's good that you're 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 doing the journalism thing and you're uh, <laughs> you're being able to be there and see it firsthand. Um, but yeah, that was the WTA finals, uh, uh, which was a big big story of the week. Uh, but also Paris Masters, Djokovic winning his 40th Masters title, which no player has ever done. Double singles, woman or man, has ever won 40, 1,000 titles. Djokovic is ridiculous. He is now 40 and 18 in Masters titles. Uh, he's won every single one of them at least twice. If he wins another Monte Carlo, he would have won every single one three times. Went to seventh Paris. And uh, all of that, this wasn't easy. 
This was not an easy title. He was very excited when he got through it because a lot of people thought he was going to lose his round of 16 match. A lot of people thought he was going to lose his quarterfinal match. A lot of people thought he was going to lose his semifinal versus Rublev. And then people thought, oh, Dimitrov has just beaten Medvedev and Tsitsipas and beat Alcaraz in Shanghai. He's going to lose to Dimitrov. Well, there's one guy standing at the end of the event, and his name is Novak Djokovic, like we've seen for the last 15 years or so, or at least since about 2011 or so. <laughs> Uh, yeah. he's, he just finds a way to be at the end of the event. He's like, you know what? Well, I'm part of this new generation. I'm still around and uh, nobody's going to take me down, but it really wasn't easy. Uh, in his match against Greek sport, he was down four, six, it was four, four in the second set. He was down 1540. He said he was dealing with stomach problems and he was still found a way through that match. And then against Holger Runa, very similar match to last year, except, uh, he kind of was winning more tight games as the match kind of progressed in that third set. Um, and then against Rublev, Rublev was cracking winner after winner, hit 19 winners, two unforced <laughs> errors in the first set, over 50 winners for the match. Rublev, the best match he may have ever played in his life, and Djokovic still ends up the victor. Um, so Djokovic is just, his mental side just brings him to be probably the best player we've ever seen. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think at this point, like, of course, there's always going to be that fan bases and people who have preferences. But in terms of the math and the numbers, I mean, it's undeniable. The guy um, is unlike anything we've ever seen. He's a winning machine. Um, he's doing this at 36 years old that, you know, some of the other legends, you know, couldn't couldn't make it this consistently. Um, you know, he's made every single major final. He's got three major titles this year. Don't, narrowly missed out on Wimbledon. Um you know, the fact that he can also not play for six weeks and then come in, you know, come in and <laughs> play this event and still win it with the field that they had. Granted, you know, some of the some of the top guys lost early on, but that doesn't matter. You play you, you beat who's in front of you and he did that. And um yeah, in moments it looked tight. It looked like he could kind of give in of like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm sick or my back's a bit sore and Turin's next week and I don't really fancy it and you know, kind of be a little like iffy but we didn't see that from him at all he's determined with every single tournament that he plays that he's gonna win it he picks the tournaments that he thinks is important and he shows up with every intention to win and he gets it done 90 percent of the time yeah. and um yeah i mean there's nothing more to say than he's it's just admirable to watch him play to watch him come through these moments and um he's the best of the best that's simple as yeah. I mean, he's just so ruthless. I mean, at 36, the athleticism that was on show is just unbelievable. Get through tight match after tight match, three sets after three sets. And uh, it's amazing. I mean, as amazing as Roger Federer was, he won 103 titles. 54 of those were big titles. Djokovic now 97 titles, 70 big titles. Big events won, which is yeah. a big number. And it's like, how is this guy still doing this match after match? And um it's just, it really is amazing to watch him come through and not give up. And I, th I think it's the big story of Djokovic. And it's also the big story of the big three, which is yeah. Djokovic lost one of the most heartbreaking losses and probably will go down as one of the most famous losses, maybe in tennis history at Wimbledon, especially if Alcaraz does become the legend that some people think he's going to become. He lost this absolutely brutal match. Like you said, he was like a set away technically from winning the calendar slam this year. Had he won that match. And he lost that match, and he said, oh, well, I'm not going to lose a match after this. I just, I'm just i going to beat Djokovic in, a in an epic in Cincinnati, <laughs> saving match point in the second set. I'm going to I'm gonna go on to win the U.S. Open, not the hardest draw, but still a very tough one. Beat Medvedev in, I think, like a two-hour second set, which was ridiculous, at 36 years old. And then, yeah, coming through Paris, it's just the guy doesn't lose on hard courts. He hasn't lost a hard court match since Medvedev in Dubai. I mean – He's, he's something else. And also last year, he lost the Paris final last year to Runa. He said, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to win it next year. You know what? I lost Wimbledon. I'm going to win it next year. And it, it's it's really a myth that Djokovic never loses. The difference is right after he loses, he just goes right back to winning. He has yeah. an eight. And that's what marks dominance because nobody is perfect. As perfect looking as Djokovic looks, nobody is perfect. Lost Paris last year, lost Wimbledon last year, but he just keeps on winning after that. And he is human at the end of the day. He just is ruthless and chasing chasing victory no, no matter what. When ahead, when behind, or even when he's losing, he just finds a way to go back to the winning spot. And um, 
I mean, Novak is just unbelievable. And this week, I mean, his forehand is looking as good as I've ever seen it. His forehand was amazing all week. And he wouldn't have been able to beat Rublev if it wasn't. I mean, it's just, it feels like he's been perfecting his game and he's perfected the forehand to be such an amazing weapon, such an adaptable weapon, such just effective shot in, shot out. And it's exciting because I I feel like he still has more to show us in tennis, and Djokovic believes the same thing. He said this week, you know what? I, I, I'm chasing the records. I want the most Grand Slams. You know, I'm not going to be dishonest about it, and I believe yeah. that I have a place in history. So show me what you've got. I'm going to show you what I've got, and then so, let's see what happens. And yeah. um, it's, a, it's, it's quite amazing to see from Novak that he's still doing this at 36. It's so wild. Yeah, I think what – you know, that's exactly right. And I think what's also what he's done better at his age than anybody else who's had, you know, longevity in their career is kind of his ability. We've talked about this before, but he constantly just reinvents himself depending on, you know, where a weakness pops up. And when you get older, naturally, there are going to be things that you need to change or do differently because your body can't, you know, do things the same way you did when you were 25. And he even admits that. So, I think for him, he's almost like motivated or continues to be engaged because he's like, oh shit, there's always something new for me to learn or tamper, tamper you know, tamper with or change and, or adjust. And, you know, we see that with his serve. We see that with his willingness to serve and volley. We see that with the forehand continuing to improve. Like, you know, it used to be the backhand and Djokovic were synonymous. Like now, now we're talking about kind of an all court game with weapons kind of everywhere He's learning from his opponents and kind of what they do and how to, you know, how to figure it out. Comes back with a different strategy if he loses. I mean, yeah. the guy's hyper intelligent, hyper motivated, ultra disciplined. Nobody's as disciplined as him. I think not just in tennis, but honestly in any sport. I mean, I don't, I, I really can't think of anybody that is that elite and trains in those ways and, and is as dominant for as long as he's been in any other sport. I mean, we're talking about the guy like hardly gets injured anymore either. I mean, he, he I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how he yeah. does it. It's, it's incredible. I mean, half of the field, you know, is 10 years younger than him. That's inside the top 10. I mean, nobody, nobody's even close to his age and he's, he's still laughing all the way home. I mean, cause he wins everything. So yeah, I mean, of course he's human. Of course he's going to lose the odd match. Nobody is invincible, but you know, I, I think I, th I think the rest of the tour probably, you know, went into this year maybe thinking, how many more years can Djokovic do this? Like, surely not. And I think if I take anything away, I'm like, at least three more years of, of this, at least. Like, yeah. a, barring a major injury that, you know, comes from an accident or something that's a fluke that's unlucky. I mean, this guy is going to take care of himself. He's going to take care of his body and he's going to quit when he's bored and satisfied. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think his body's going to give out on him and his mental is certainly not going to give out on him either. Yeah, cer certainly not for next year. I think a lot of people going into this year were like, is this the year next year? No. I mean that what we learned from is, is don't count him out. This guy is still around at the very top of his game, winning three out of four majors. Um, he, to, to be fair, he is still younger than, for example, Federer when he won his last major. Right now he is. Yeah. So uh, we'll see. Mother Nature seems to never lose. But if somebody's yeah. going to beat her, I think his name is Joe, Novak Djokovic. And what we'll see, yeah. though, I, I mean, what's amazing about him is he's always been known for his, like, like ridiculous backhand slides. I mean, he's known for these kind of, like, amazing um, – open stance backhands on the on uh, just amazing athleticism and stretches is sometimes compared to spider-man like yeah. he, he's known for that he's he's been playing this dominating playing over 50 60 matches a year for 12 consecutive years with such a physical game style it's not like he's playing like no offense to Gilles Simone, but it's not like he has that kind of game style or even more like John Isner or something where he's just serving mm -hmm. and just like putting away serve after serve. Like this guy is grinding and rallying and yeah. stretching and hitting crazy shots. And I just don't know how he does it. I think some people would have said it's not possible at 36 to win three out of four majors. We'll see what he does in next year, because like you said, I think he's going to end it on his terms. I'm not sure that He's going to keep going forever, but he's going to end it on his terms. And he's got more wins in him. It's very obvious that he has yeah. more wins in him. 
I would put, I don't know, $10 today on him winning a slam when he's 40. Really? That, that, yeah. I mean, we, we can check back in in four years if that happens. But honestly, I would not be surprised. I really would not be surprised. I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing athletes hitting that 39, 40 mark in the Premier League, in other sports, and it's happening. And he's certainly, um, you know, on the right trajectory, in my opinion, to be somebody who's like that. I secretly think that's kind of something he would like love to be able to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, I want to sign when I'm 40, when I'm 20, when I'm 30, yeah. when I'm 40. Um, and I feel like that might be the moment he sort of throws down the gauntlet. Obviously, it's, uh, it's a ways away, but I, I would put money on that today um, if I got some good odds. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see what happens. He's certainly the best 36-year-old that we've ever seen him play. I yeah. don't think he'll win a major when he's 40, to be honest, but <laughs> I'm willing to take that $10 bet. I'll give you the 10 in, uh, All if, right. if that happens. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I'll come uh, find you. Sounds good. <laughs> um all right. Uh, but yeah, the, I mean, Paris Masters, uh, great win for Novak. We'll see what he does in tour win. I mean, hasn't lost a hardcore match in a Masters or a major tournament all year. And that's, I think, the big stat going into tour win that everybody is very afraid of. <laughs> 24 and zero. Yeah. All right. And so for the power rankings, I mean, Djokovic moved back up. I, I gave Yannick the nod last week, but Yannick had to withdraw from the tournament because Paris Masters had ridiculous scheduling where he was playing a match at like 3 a.m. And then he was just like, you know what, I'm out. I mean, I'm going to Turin. I don't need any part of this. I'm, I'm one of the eight best players in the world. I'm not going to be playing at 3 a.m. then have five hours sleep and come back. So he said I'm out. Uh, either way, center drops down, mostly just because Djokovic uh, came back and he's on a, I think, 18, 19 match win streak from Cincinnati, U.S. Open in Paris. So... Uh, Djokovic deserves the number one spot for sure. I don't think anybody's contesting that. Um, and then, yeah, after that, I have Rublev. Uh, I think we both moved Rublev up to the third spot because uh, Andre had a really great week. Uh, neither Medvedev or Alcaraz performed that well this week. They both lost their first matches to uh, Dimitrov. Alcaraz lost to uh, Safulin in the first round. But uh, Rublev playing really amazing, so consistent, got to the final Shanghai. Um, and they got to the semifinals last week. And then, yeah, he's just playing so good uh, just all around, too. I mean, more variety against Novak, which really helped him as well, but especially just that forehand, cracking winner after winner. And it, I mean, I know sometimes you think – sometimes uh, somebody may say you, he needs more tools, but he, that takes some talent. That takes some skill to be able to just whack forehand after forehand, be able to place it where he wants to on the court. So amazing stuff from Rublev. Uh, it says Dimitrov minus one here, but it really should be. Dimitrov moved up uh, here to my fourth spot because Demi played uh, Demi played super, super well and got to the final. Uh, do you kind of want to talk about your power rank? Because I see Demi at number seven. Uh, is just the guys ahead of him too good? Or well, what's, what's about that? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I take some of the year into consideration. I think Dimitrov has had a fantastic, um, you know, past couple of months since the US Open. He's honestly had a good season for him. He's he's I think equaled his kind of third best record in terms of most wins in a season. He had a fantastic run here. It was sort of heartbreaking to to watch him lose and unfortunate to, you know, come up come up against Djokovic in the final. It's just the toughest task and um one of the hardest guys to beat in a final. And it's it's great to see him play. I just, uh, you know, I got to give a nod to a, a, a Grand Slam winner a little bit, give him the benefit of the doubt. Obviously, he did, uh, Alcaraz did lose um, first round, but we know he's kind of, he's exhausted. <laughs> he's got to figure out his um, his way to kind of finish out the season. I think for me, his performance in Turin is really going to be a marker as to like how much of a decline there is for him at this part of the year. Um, if he can get it together or not, I mean, maybe... Um, a couple more days of rest between uh, Paris and Turin will have helped and or maybe he'll lose momentum. I'm not sure. So that's kind of the reasoning there. Um, but I agree with you. I think Reba have had a fantastic performance. I also think Harkatch played well again this week, um, you know, making another decent run of things and continues to put together really solid back-to-back -back performances, which is super important. Um, I moved Zverev down a slot because of his loss to Tsitsipas, um, but I put Tsitsipas back inside my top 10. He hasn't been in my top 10 for I don't even yeah. know how long. So. Yeah, I moved Welcome him back, back up to nine as well. <laughs> yeah, he moved and, up to nine. 
for me yeah. to yeah. Yeah, I mean he did, he had a good week. He the backhand looked like it was, you know, humming a little better. I, I mean I think the conditions are favorable for him in Paris. It's a you know slightly lower bouncing indoor court, uh takes some of the variables out of his backhand, which has just been so hit and miss um for the past couple of months really. Um, and then Runa also had a much better week. I mean, I think something must be clicking with this new partnership. Sometimes when you have a, a new coach, you kind of get a little bit of a rebound effect. You know, some new new ideas, some new thinking, some new energy can be motivating, especially this time of year. And I'm sure Boris has, um, you know, parted knowledge to him in a, in, a, in a thing or two that's been helpful for him in terms of his game. And he he played a good match against Djokovic. I mean, he he made him work for it, that's for sure. And he showed a very impressive level to fight back in the second set. So was impressed yeah. to see that from him. Yeah, the second set was very impressive, just the mental side of everything. Uh, yeah. In the first set, I felt like he would have even given himself more chances, but he was just too far behind the baseline. I don't know why he was putting yeah. himself in that kind of position. And just yeah. uh, hitting these kind of weird, um, like almost like lasso forehands, like buggy whip forehands from the back of the court. Not, I felt like if he stepped in more and took on the shots, which he started to do in the second set, then he would have given, uh, given himself better chances. But still, he looked much closer to the Runa we saw win Paris last year. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that was that was very good to see runa just has so many options but when he's playing more aggressively on the indoor courts that's he just looks amazing so that second set was really good to see from him and i guess he gained more confidence to be able to step in against novak which isn't which isn't particularly easy um but yeah uh we have very similar uh 10 i think you just have runa i have shelton just give a sh uh, a nod to shelton because he had that crazy run uh from us open shanghai and tokyo yeah. But um, but yeah, Runa Runa makes sense as well. Uh, then yeah, on the woman's side, Sviantek climbs up for me. I had Coco, but Sviantek <laughs> is undebatably at the top of the power rankings. I don't think we'll ever have a moment where it it's as undeniable who's number one for the for the power rankings on the WTA side because Sviantek literally, I think she was playing for the power rankings this week the way she played <laughs> the semifinals and the finals. She was like, yeah, I'm gonna beat Sabalenka and then yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna beat Pagula six one six zero. So, um, but yeah, so she she's she's the number one. Pagula climbed up to me in front of Coco, beat her pretty badly in the semifinals, and also just played had a great week. She's been having a good uh, good time of things as always, very consistent. Um, and then, yeah, outside of that, Ons climbed back into my power rankings. This is like the year-end WTA power rankings, I guess. Um, so, uh, Ons climbed up, which I was happy to see. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, do you want to talk? I see Ons all the way to number six, which, uh, I don't mind that, but I am curious, um, about that. Uh, well, look, I mean, I think it, it was hard for me to justify too much movement, here because it just I felt like I couldn't um read too much into like the golf pagula match it just it just like the conditions were just so bad um yeah. and so Sakari had the worst week of all but at least she showed a little bit of fight back against Rebakana in that um second match that she played uh so that's why I kind of swapped her with the Jabor spot because Jabor did pick up a win um so the kind of that was that that's why I had some movement there but you know to be honest with you the rest of the field you know it is pretty much finished in terms of contenders for power rankings and top 10 positions so I didn't really feel like I could make too much movement in my uh, power rankings for the women yeah that's right I mean the conditions are so like um so neutralizing that it's like you don't want to pick uh, one yeah. over the other too much. So I understand that. Yeah. I guess yeah. Pagula just her level on the courts impressed me more than anything that I decided mm -hmm. to rise her up, but it's understandable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, go ahead. Did you have something else you want to add? No, or? I'm just uh, realizing that I didn't put, I didn't have Andrew Sever in here. I mean, oh, okay. uh, yeah. she, she didn't have a great tournament to be, to be fair. I mean, of all the players, she was probably the one that looked the most visibly pissed off and the most like I want to leave um, type of kind of look on her face. I mean, yeah. she was, she was not yeah. happy. And, and also to be fair, her game style is a lot of variety, a lot of kind yeah. of, you know, um, random shot making kind of different decision-making from traditional. And that's even harder to do under those types of conditions. I, I really sure. thought like, you know, she's the type of player that's crafty, that's clever, can, 
kind of come in, you know, under the radar a little bit. And I thought she might be able to cause some problems this week, but she just, uh, I mean, she had the chance to beat Coco and she was serving for it and just, just couldn't get it done. I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly what went wrong with her, but that, that the conditions seemed to really impact her the most out of everybody in that field. And um, yeah, yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of hard to, to move her in given the good performances last week that we saw from Hadid Meyer and Kruchikova. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, Hadid and Meyer winning the elite trophy. Yeah, I think, yeah. well, that might explain like the final, like Pagula taking on Triante yeah. because they're like two of the more like consistent, like kind of hitters in the, in yeah. the, in the tour. So I think, um, I mean, Jabor took out Von Drusva, but they're also players that like to dictate whether that's not even necessarily with big shots, but weird, like crafty, like uh, chips and slices yeah. and coming to net and drop shots. And yeah. So yeah, I think uh, under like the most chaotic conditions playing a kind of chaotic game, uh, and Sabalenka's game isn't particularly chaotic, especially this year. Now that she's gotten a little bit more consistently consistent, a bit more mentally solid, better shot decisions. Mm-hmm. But her game goes for a lot with the forehands. And when there's so much crazy wind, to be fair to Sabalenka, I think it was a little bit harder for her to play her game. And that might oh, be part of sure. the reason we saw some of the re- results. So, yeah. Um, yeah she also a has good- a very high ball toss. I mean, like, um, you know, she's fixed so much with the serve this year. But, like, just watching them again in person, you know, the rebuck and the serve is so clean. It's so simple. Like, there's so few right. kind of elements to it that could go yeah. wrong to me. Um, and that's what makes her the best server on tour and the most consistent. I think with Sabalenka, when I watch her, the the when she drags her toe in, there's, like, a lot of uh, intention and force, like, almost like a step down when she serves. The toss is really high. And the way she takes the racket back, there's an adjustment she makes with her wrist, sort of, like, last minute before she hits it. I mean, look, I mean, she's hitting a ton of aces. She she powers the serve. I, I, like, I'm not one to kind of uh, biomechanically analyze it, but there are a lot more moving components to her serve that under windy conditions, I mean – she was throwing up double fault numbers that were comparable to 2022. I mean, she had some matches where there was like 15, 16, 17 double faults. I mean, that's not good. But I also think, you know, she, we give her the benefit of the doubt in this situation because she has had a much better year. And I don't think she was out there like, you know, all of a sudden regressing to being somebody that's, you know, having issues with double faults again. I think really like it's all of the, the fact that she kind of has a little bit of, of a complicated serve and and the ball toss is so high the wind just was impacting her more than more than others yeah i think probably blame it more on the wind i mean she's had like an odd match this year like i I remember rabakna uh in beijing i believe in the quarterfinals uh she hit like 16 double falls or 17 so she can have a bad day with it uh but yeah this year i feel like she's cleaned it up so hopefully like going into next year like hopefully she doesn't have like the start like a 2024 like she did at the start of 2022 where she was just throwing up double fall after double fall yeah, and the crowd so. the crowd was laughing at her yeah hopefully yeah. that doesn't happen uh, again and yeah i think uh we'll see what happens with uh yeah with that uh but yeah that was kind of the power rankings and then um we can talk just quickly about the upcoming as well so upcoming tournaments on the atp side there's a couple of 250s in uh sofia and in mets to kind of ra- round off the atp season <clears throat> and then also a Billie Jean King Cup. There's uh, there's a few countries playing here. There's Spain, Czech Republic, France, Canada, U.S., Slovakia, Germany, Kazakhstan, Romania. Those are the seeded teams. Um, and uh, then also some of the unseeded Italy, Belgium, Great Britain, Poland, Brazil, Ukraine, Mexico, Austria, and so uh, Slovenia, obviously the U.S. team, we understand how uh, how good the U.S. team is, although I don't know if uh, some of the top, top players are playing. I believe Madsen Keys might be playing it. I don't know about Pagula or Goff as much, but uh, no, Canada, they're not playing. Okay. No. And then also uh, Canada, Leila Fernandez uh, is playing for, uh, for there as well. Uh, so, yeah, but that's something that always happens kind of the end of the season, kind of like on the ATP side. Uh, after the ATP finals kind of has Davis cup. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, uh, that's something coming up. Uh, that's always exciting. And uh, do you have anything else to add Paris WTA finals, anything else like that? No, just looking forward to Turin now. Um, yeah. And I think from a fan perspective, everyone's uh, 
everyone's pretty tennised out. I mean, from from the U.S. swing through the U.S. Open through the Asian swing and now finishing up with the finals. Um, players and fans alike looking forward to a little a little bit of a break. You know, obviously there's 250 tournaments dotted around both for the WTA and ATP um, between now and the new year. But uh, the, the, the players competing in those tournaments are usually players who are injured, who are trying to kind of get back into things and, and gain some momentum. So, you know, I think uh, overall it's been a, a good end to the season for the women. I think it's been a, a great year and showcase of tennis, different Grand Slam champions at each event and um, a very exciting year in in women's kind of tennis history. And we'll see how that unfolds in 2024. And of course, we're still waiting for the grand prize to cap it all off for the men. And I'm excited to, to dissect that when they're all finished up. Yeah, for sure. And I'm yeah, Turin is going to be very exciting. I mean, the rivalries yeah. have just like ex- gotten so exciting recently yeah. with how uh, kind of center has figured out Medvedev, Medvedev has figured yeah. out Alcaraz and a- yeah. everything in between. So that's going to be very exciting. And yeah, um, indoor tournament, good crowds. I mean, I expect yeah. that to be a very high level tournament. Yeah. And um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was a good good WTA season. Not so good of an ending, which is unfortunate. Hopefully that's figured yeah. out way better next year. And, um, yeah, looking forward to uh, touring at least for the men's. And, uh, yeah, uh, that was kind of the Tennis 360 podcast. Uh, don't forget to like the uh, pod if you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel. I've been Anthony Hirsch. And I'm Eliza Westgate. See you guys at the next one. Bye.